morning that the way that God our Father actually parents us is uh, by putting his spirit inside of us. In fact, uh, the Bible says you cannot be a Christian without the spirit of God. You cannot be a Christian without God's spirit entering your life. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, Paul talks about this, I think, and uh, how important this is. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10. As it is written, no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard, no mind has ever conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. I suggest that God parents us by giving us his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, nobody knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. You cannot be a Christian without the very Spirit of God entering into our lives. Why? Because the truth of God, once again, is just outside the grasp of the natural mind. Only the Spirit of God can reveal the mind of God uh, into our spirits. And so in Romans chapter 8, where we've been studying, verses 9 and 10, sort of say the same thing. You, however, are controlled not by your old sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Here's what the Bible says. If you're a Christian and the Spirit of God lives in you, eventually the Spirit will win. You will be continually, increasingly influenced by the Spirit of God. First Corinthians, or Philippians 1.6 says that once God begins a work in you, he will see it through until the end. So for us as a believer, we're no longer controlled by that sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anybody does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. You cannot be a Christian without the very Spirit of God coming into your life. And uh, we all are aware, I think, that once the Spirit does come into our life, there is always a conflict between our body and our spirit. There's always a discrepancy between sin and righteousness. There's always a discrepancy between where our bodies want to take us and where the Spirit of God wants to take us. And so we always have to make this decision in our soul as to whether or not I will follow the spirit who's in me or my body and the world that's around me. And I make that choice. The spirit provides us with a whole new life, a whole new identity. And you'll notice the very next verse here in, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, this spirit is powerful. You can't mess with this spirit. Once the spirit of Christ gets in you, look what it says in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead gets inside of you, this is a powerful spirit, the same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead. If that spirit is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The spirit is powerful. That's why you can be confident that eventually he will have more influence than anything else in your life. And so 
if you're a Christian, now the Bible actually calls your body a temple of the Holy Spirit, a, a temple of the presence of the living God. The Holy Spirit's not an idea. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Holy Spirit's a person, the third person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so once we become Christians, we, we have two natures that fight for uh, dominance in our lives. We have an old nature primarily located in our body, and we have an inner nature, a new inner nature, primarily located in our spirits. And these two natures compete for our soul, for the way we think, for the way we feel about things, and for the way we make decisions. Uh, one or the other ends up dominating you know, our lives. Our son Brett has an old car. It's a 1926 Ford, Model T. Uh, it makes it 86 years old today. 86 years old, his car. However, inside, under the hood, there's a much newer engine, a Chevy engine. And uh, it's a whole different dynamic on the inside. It supplies a whole new life to a very old car. If you can understand, right? And, uh, you know, this car now is kind of a hybrid. It's not a Ford. It's not a Chevy. Nobody really quite knows what it is. It's different. And uh, because of the way it is now, it's no longer obligated to its old life. It's no longer obligated to go slow. It just picks right up. It's no longer obligated to have those skinny little Model T tires. It's no longer obligated to um, have mechanical brakes that you had to really stand on in order to get the thing to stop. It's no longer obligated to, to have to take a crank to start the thing. So interesting thing, yesterday I saw that there was a Model T show in Shelton. I decided to take my son's car and go to the Model T show. So off we go. The only Model T that was converted was ours. All the rest were still in Adam. They were all original. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, I've been shunned as a Christian, <laughs> but I've never been shunned like I was yesterday by all of these people who are like looking at me like I'm a criminal because I'm driving this Model T that's got new life inside of it. That's contemporary, that's relevant, that's going to last longer than those things they put in the barn and only bring out for a parade, you see. And I thought to myself, you know, this is so, such a good illustration. And so in Romans chapter 8, where we're studying today, look at verse 12, it says, Therefore, brothers... You and I who've been transferred out of Adam and into Christ, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to our old nature. It's not to our old nature anymore. Uh, the body of my son's car is now subject to a whole new drivetrain that takes over. And uh, you'll notice that this starts and says, therefore, uh, the very spirit of God gets inside of us and therefore, we have an entirely new obligation. You no longer have to live according to the dictates of your body. You no longer have to be obligated to the dictates of the world in which we live. We're no longer obliged to be our old self. I don't have to give in to my old nature. I don't have to yield to my old motives. 
I don't have to live by my old principles. I don't have to be devoted to my old affections and my traditions. In my thoughts, in my feelings, and in my choices, I have an entirely new life in my soul. I am no longer obligated, Paul says, therefore, because the Spirit of God actually moves into a Christian's life, therefore, I no longer am obligated to the old life. I have a whole new obligation. Uh, My old nature uh, is dying, but I have this new nature. In fact, my old nature is not sustainable. Uh, When my soul is dependent on input from my body and the world around me, I'm dying. It's temporary, all of it. But when my soul is drawing life from my spirit, which is eternal, which is empowered by the very spirit of God who brought Jesus back from the dead, I am beginning to experience eternal life. And I love the way Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, therefore, look, we don't lose heart as Christians. We don't lose heart because God's spirit is in our hearts. We don't lose heart as Christians, though outwardly we're wasting away. That not true about anybody? Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day by day by day by day. Inside we're getting better and better and better. More and more of that eternal life is taking over, influencing our souls. Outside we're wasting away. This body is temporary. The world in which we live is temporary. Outside we're wasting away. Inside we're being renewed. For our light and momentary troubles in this life are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs this life. This life is 70, 80, maybe 100 years long. This is eternity. It just goes on and on and on. And God is saying, I'm not beyond using a couple of hardships in this little window of time in order to bless the people that I love for all of eternity. Okay? And so he says, for what is seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. It goes on and on and on and on. And so we have this new spirit of life inside of us. And when my soul, my thoughts, my feelings, and my choices begin to feed off this new spirit that's inside of me, this new life begins to take a grip and grab a hold of me. Um, In verse 13 of uh, Romans, the next verse, uh, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. If your whole deal is this world and this body You're going to die. The world's going to pass away. If you live according to your old nature, you're on the way out. You're a has-been, okay? But the second part of this says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If in the course of your soul the Spirit is rising and the body is decreasing, that's a sign that eternity has been put into your heart. And that the very Spirit of God is in the process of getting you ready to live for all of eternity. We lose the misdeeds of our bodies. Uh, Our bodies now get used to express the life of the Spirit that's given to us. And our bodies become this uh, location of expression. No longer control uh, our souls. Our bodies no longer control our souls, but our souls begin to control our bodies And our bodies get used to express the things that God is building into our life, like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. All of these things that the Spirit of God begins to bring to the surface in our life. When we actually get to Romans chapter 12, there's another big therefore. This is kind of the halfway point in the book, Romans chapter 12. It goes from the theology into the practical application. And Paul says this in 
Romans chapter 12, therefore, because of all this theology, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to this God who loves you. This is your spiritual worship. What is worship? Is worship just coming here and, you know, uh, spending an hour at church and meeting my friends? You know, worship is an offering. Worship is a response of my life to the God who always goes first. God loves first. God teaches first. And worship is simply a response of saying, you know, I trust you. I love you. You're my father. And I give myself to you. So Paul says, as a result of all this great, you know, truth about uh, what God has done for us in Christ and so forth, therefore, offer your bodies as a sacrifice to God. And don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You'll be able to know what the will of God actually is in our lives. Now, in our passage in Romans chapter 8, we come to, I think, a, a very sweet spot in the Bible in these next couple of verses. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, uh, we read these words. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are family to God. Sons and daughters. And I think the, the reason that the word sons is used and not daughters, and it's kind of a generic term, I think, in this text, simply because at the end of this text, we're talking about inheritance. And we're talking about the mind-blowing truth that if you're a Christian and a son or a daughter of God, that this great inheritance, everything God has, is ours. That's where all this is going because we're family. And only sons inherited in, in these days. And so I think that's why the word sons is there. But you might read it sons and daughters. But here's what it says. Because we who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You're a believer and the Spirit of God gets in you and God parents you by his Spirit. Fear is gone. This isn't about, you know, oh, I better measure up or God's going to get me. That's all gone. There is, therefore, now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ, for those who are out of Adam and into Christ, right? And so look at, he goes on, he says, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear. You received the spirit of sonship, if you're a Christian, by which we cry out to God, Abba, which means dad. It's a, it's a, a term of uh, intimacy. It's a term of dependence. Uh, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You remember, there are two laws that govern God's relationship with people. The first law is the law of sin and death, Right? That's the law that governs God's relationship with people who are not in the family. Everybody treats their family different than they treat everybody else, right? God the Father says there are two laws. The first law is the law of sin and death. And the second law is the law of the spirit of life. God says when you trust Christ and you move out of being in Adam and into being in Christ, his spirit comes in us, and there's a whole new law that governs our relationship with God. It's no longer the law of sin and death. That governs the relationship of people who are outside the family. 
but it's the law of the spirit of life. Look at the first couple of verses in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A whole different law is at work. Because through Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Ha, that's such a, a great, isn't that good news? The law of the spirit of life, when the spirit of eternal life gets inside of me, sets me free from that law of sin and death. And my whole relationship to God, God relates to me on an entirely different basis when I truly have the spirit of God living in me. And the spirit of the father gets into the spirit of his children. The father loves you. The father created you. The father's committed to you. The father has only good things for you. The Bible explains that our relationship with God is now personal. It's intimate and it's permanent. You cannot undo this relationship once it starts. God wants us to know that we belong to him, that we're secure in him, that we're free in him, that there's no condemnation. We're outside of the law of sin and death. And I just thought, you know, are you aware of being led by the Spirit of God in your life? Are you aware, I mean, of the presence of the very Spirit of our Heavenly Father, our Father which is in heaven, being present in your life? Uh, you know, some evidences, I think, that of, of the Spirit's leading in our life is that, you know, first of all, I think we increasingly understand the Bible. I mean, this is God's Word. And not only do we understand it, but we desire it. Like, we want to know, what does my father think? What does my father have to say about this subject? You know, what does God say I should do in this situation? And, and, and the Spirit of God helps us to understand the Word of God. And it becomes increasingly clear to us. I think the Spirit of God also helps us to feel conviction. There are certain parts of our life that we know aren't right, and it's the very presence of the Spirit of God that makes us uncomfortable. You know, if we're still in Adam and we're just off living that way, we're feeling great about ourselves. We even have pride about it. But once the Spirit of God gets in us, all of a sudden there's this different relationship and there's this sense of conviction about some of the parts of our life. That's God's presence. Do you ever hurt for Jesus' sake? You ever hear people like use his name in vain or something and something goes off inside you, it hurts you, bothers you. That's the Spirit of God. Do you ever get upset because somebody is so lost? You're talking to somebody and they're telling you their philosophy of life and you just know they're dead wrong. And something goes off inside of you and you have compassion and you're upset and it bothers you. That's evidence of the Spirit of, of God that's moved into your life. If you don't really give a hoot, if you don't really care that the world is going to hell, that Jesus died for the whole world, God so loved the world that he gave his son, you know, that whosoever, but you don't really care. Well, you better sense, you know, is the Spirit of God. Am I really a son or a daughter of the living God? Um, do you have this sense that you know that you'll be in heaven when you die? Do you sense that you're uh, becoming a more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, faithful, self-controlled, less, less self-centered kind of person? It's the Spirit of God. The Bible tells us these are the nine fruits that will happen in your life if the Spirit of God comes into your life. You know, the fruits of the Spirit, the, the results of his presence in our life. And you'll notice that uh, in our text today, I say this is a, such a sweet text because we're given the privilege to, to call God Abba, to get to know God personally. And um, this word Abba is used three times in the New Testament. It's used once in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane asking his father to please take the cross away from him. Remember that scene? 
And in Mark 14, he uses the word, Abba, Dad, please, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The second place it's used is here, and the third place it's used is in um, Galatians, uh, where Paul says this to the Galatian church. He says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart. Because God has adopted you, God parents you by putting his spirit right inside of your spirit and sends his spirit into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, if you think about this, you know, in the Old Testament, people didn't even pronounce the name of God. To go from the Old Testament where you didn't even put the name of God on your lips to calling him Abba was scandalous to the Jewish people. It was blasphemous for Jesus to call his father Abba. I don't know if you've been to Israel. I've been uh, to Israel, and it's great. All the little kids run around. Abba, 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 Dad, Daddy, where are you? Dad, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's, a, it's an endearing term, you know? And he goes on here, and he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. When you become a Christian, you're no longer a slave. The law of sin and death is not at work. You're no longer an employee. You're no longer an servant. You're a son. You're privileged. You're blessed. You carry the family name. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. God has made you an heir. Wow. So, again, I want to suggest to you that God parents us through giving his spirit to us in our hearts. And God longs for us to be uh, trusting, just like every parent wishes their kid would just trust them. Just take me at my word. Just do what I'm telling you. Just listen to what I'm saying. And God, our Father, longs for us to be like that, to, but not out of fear, but out of reverence, out of worship, out of awe for who he is and what he's sacrificed. And God doesn't force us. You know why? Because he wants our hearts. God doesn't force our obedience because he wants our hearts. Surface obedience without the heart is useless to God. That's why Jesus never got along with the Pharisees. The Pharisees focused everything on the surface of their life, trying to keep all the laws and rules, but they would never yield their heart to what God was up to. And they wouldn't give their heart to those portions of Scripture that would explain truly God's nature, God's spirit, and what he was doing, especially in Jesus. And so Jesus would never get along with those Pharisees. It's by God's spirit that we understand him. And again, it's God's thoughts that come to us by his spirit. God's ways are just beyond the grasp of natural minds. God's Spirit helps us to trust in Him with all of our heart and not to lean on our own understanding. In all of our ways, acknowledge Him, and then He'll direct our path, and He'll give us the wisdom to make wise choices. So God parents us by His Spirit. He reveals His truth to us, and then second, the Spirit gives us the power to actually change, the power to actually obey, not out of fear, but out of respect and out of love. It's by His Spirit that we actually uh, change. And when we live by his spirit, um, then God can bless us. And then God can glorify himself through us. And uh, we stumble in that process, but then God disciplines us, and it's only because he loves us. And so I want to say to you, the spirit of family is the spirit of security. It's the spirit of love. It's the spirit of acceptance and compassion and truth. And it's the opposite of fear. The Bible actually says that God has not given us the spirit of fear but the spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. 
That's the Spirit of God. When there's empowerment, when there's love, when there's self-control, self-discipline, that's the Spirit of the living God. It's the Spirit of family. We've been given the Spirit of sonship. And you know, God's children know, I think, that they are the children of God. Our spirit recognizes God's Spirit in us, and uh, by which we're able to call Him Abba. In 2 Corinthians, uh, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, Paul talks about it like this. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. If you want to find God in the world today, where would you go look? He lives in people. We are the temple of the living God. Imagine the very presence of God exists within us. We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch anything unclean. I'll receive you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, dear friends, let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, out of reverence or respect for God. God parents us by putting his spirit into our hearts. Now, I, uh, now I have some of these uh, PowerPoints, and uh, you know I want to explain to you that last week somebody said, oh, thanks for drawing that. I didn't draw these. These uh, come from a curriculum that I have called uh, Victorious Christian Living. And uh, it's a series of books called Salt, and uh, I was able to buy the disc that had some of the illustrations, and so I thought these might be helpful to just kind of remember. When God's Spirit gets in us, and, God, and we think about God being our parent, our father, our Abba, there are two things that that involves, all right? Acceptance and accountability. Acceptance, what is parenting really all about? Acceptance, I love you, God says to us. You're my children, I'm going to adopt you. And then accountability, right? Um, and so if you can think about parenting, uh, the way God parents us, uh, and you might say to yourself, you know, there's, there's maybe four different basic kinds of ways that people parent. The first way is the way God parents us. High acceptance and high accountability. That's the best kind of parenting. High acceptance that your kids know that they're loved, that God communicates to you he loves you no matter what the law of sin and death is history the law of the spirit of life is what's taken over in our relationship here and good parenting god's spirit in us is like high acceptance and high accountability uh if you fall a little short of that you might say um if you have high acceptance and low accountability you'll be called maybe a permissive parent if Johnny is always right, teacher calls up, Johnny's been a bad boy. Oh, not my Johnny. He's always right. You can tell I'm married to a teacher, right? See? <laughs> if you have high acceptance and your kid is always perfect, but you never put any demands on them and have low accountability, well, that's kind of permissive parenting, right? God doesn't do that. Next kind of parenting, you might say low accountability, low acceptance, neglectful parenting. I don't make any effort to communicate that I accept, and I don't make any effort to hold my kids accountable, you know, to teach them in the ways that are right and so on and so forth. You might call that neglectful parenting or bad parenting. And then um, if you have high accountability but low acceptance, 
all right? Controlling. Most kids think they have controlling parents, huh. right? Most kids don't, aren't aware of all that you do that's except most Christians think God is controlling. Most Christians don't focus on the cross and on the gospel and all that God has done for us and all the sacrifice that he's made for us and the eternal sacrifice that God... And we don't focus there. We're not gospel-centric. So we begin to think, oh, oh, God is just demanding. It's not true. It's not the way God parents us. Okay? And, and I think um, the unique thing about God's parenting is that acceptance is always first. If you have your Bibles open, Romans 5.8, you remember this? Uh, when we were back in Romans chapter 5, uh, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Acceptance comes first with God. I don't care what you've done wrong. I don't care where you're at. The minute you turn your life over to Christ and trust Christ, God accepts you. Don't ever think, oh, I got to get, every once in a while, I'll say, hey, you know, you've been around in this church for quite a while. You ever think about getting baptized, giving testimony to your faith in Christ? Oh, I'm not good enough yet. I'm like, don't wait for that. It will never happen. You see, the minute you trust Christ, there's a new law that goes into effect in your relationship with God. And it's acceptance. It's you're my son, you're my daughter, I'm adopting you. Yeah, you got history. Yeah, you got all this stuff that's got to be cleaned up. Yeah, you're a mess. But listen. First things first, I love you. I accept you. And God does that. He always does it. And it's first. And it's important to remember that. After God loves you and accepts you, he begins to affirm you, to kind of prove his acceptance of you. If you think about this, um, God uh, affirms you by uh, blessing you. He gets you out of trouble. Right? Who hasn't prayed and been delivered from trouble? He rescues us. He gives us spiritual gifts to enable us. Uh, he has a work for us to do. He has a plan for our life. He affirms us in a lot of different ways after he accepts us. And then, after acceptance and affirmation, he begins to hold us accountable. And he begins to say things like, look, I want you to love me. I mean, really love me with all your heart and your soul, and your mind, and your strength. I want you to love me, and I want you to love your neighbor, and I want you to forgive your enemies. And I, I want you to grow in grace and knowledge. I want you to study my word. I want you to get to know me. I'm your dad. And he begins to hold us accountable for how we're living. He begins to say, look, I want to be first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of everything else in your life. I'll add to your life what you need, and so forth. And he begins to uh, hold us accountable and um, when we respond to it, we respond to his authority. We say, wow, this is God. And he loves me, and he says, I can call him dad. And he begins to tell me these things. I can't just blow this stuff off. This is God who's talking to me. This is God who holds the keys to eternity. And I begin to recognize his authority. So I would say this is good parenting. It starts with acceptance. It seeks affirmation. It holds accountable. And it recognizes, ultimately, authority based on the love that the parent and the sacrifice that the parent gives. Bad parenting is just the opposite. It starts out with saying, I'm the authority. I'm the authority here. I'm bigger than you. You will do what I say because I can beat you to a pulp. Right? Don't do what I do. Just do what I say. 
those kinds of things. Starts with authority. And then it says, you know, um, if you obey the rules, if you understand accountability, maybe I'll give you a little affirmation. And then if you get enough affirmation, maybe you'll come to the point someday where I'll actually accept you. How many people grew up with parenting like that? I have talked to, I don't know how many people who have said to me, you know, there is nothing I could ever do to be good enough for my father. Because they were parented on this paradigm. Starting with authority, working its way, the exact opposite of the way that God parents you and I. When God parents you and I, love is first. And he comes to us, right? And he embraces us and he makes the sacrifice for us and he makes us part of the family and he makes incredible promises to us about all kinds of things in the future and so on. God's parenting of us involves his spirit getting inside of us and it starts with acceptance. And God's uh, uh, spirit, you know, assures us. I just think it's so unique about God's uh, love and it's so different than what most of us grow up with. And it's so hard for us to uh, embrace this until we experience it in our own life. And uh, we have this change of the laws that, that work into our life. You'll notice in the um, 15th verse of Romans chapter 8 where we're studying today, for you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. When the Spirit of God gets in you, it's not the spirit of being a slave. It's not the spirit of, oh, I'm scared that if I don't measure up, God's going to whip me. That's not the spirit of sonship. But it's the spirit of sonship, God says in, in verse 15. Uh, you receive the spirit of sonship by which we call him Abba, Father. Parenting's about the spirit of the parents getting into the life of the kids. And uh, when it follows God's spirit, it's about acceptance coming first and, uh, and then the rest of it following. You'll notice in these verses, kind of in closing here, in verse 14, uh, you'll notice it's the spirit that leads people. Notice verse 14, because those who are led by the spirit of God. So the first thing the spirit does is leads us. In verse 15, the spirit creates intimacy. Call me Abba. If the Spirit of God is in you, there's an increasing intimacy in your relationship with God. It's personal. It's not a relationship that's out there, that's academic, that's studious, that's, you know, it's personal, it's intimacy, it's dad. And then in verse 16, we're given assurance, right? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. You can know it now. The Spirit is in us to testify, to help us to have that assurance and so forth. And then the last verse, I think the Spirit gives us a future secures our future. This is a great, if we are children, then we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. If you're a son or a daughter of God because the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are incredibly rich. Everything God owns is destined to be yours. You ever think of that? Everything God owns and everything that there is was created by him and it's all yours. It's all destined to be yours, except for one thing, worship. God reserves worship for himself because he's the one from whom all these things flow. So uh, Revelation chapter 5 uh, talks about a scene up in heaven 
Uh, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 and they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they said, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. Everything that's God's is ours except worship. Eternally, we are heirs of everything that God has. And then there's just this one last phrase. You know, there's always phrases like this in the Bible, right? It says if. It says if. Notice. If we are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. The if might be better translated because in that verse, uh, but the proof that the glory of God will be ours someday in the future is the suffering that we begin to experience now. And uh, when you're willing to suffer because of your identity as a son or a daughter of the living God, when you honor God more than you honor the world, when you love your father and the world mocks you, when you're proud of your father and you agree with your father and you stand up for your father in the spirit of family and the world makes you suffer for it, you can be assured that in the same way you pay a price now, you will be a part of the glory that's a part of the very living God that will be ours for all of eternity. God will honor his spirit in us. So I say, live by the spirit. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, such a sweet spot in the Bible. You parenting us, not by sending down laws and rules and trying to control us, but by you accepting us at great expense to yourself. Make us gospel-centric people. Help us to understand who you are, who we are. Help us to understand that as our Father, you are willing to put the very spirit of your soul into our hearts, into our spirits. And that in that process, we are adopted as your children and we're given the privilege to know you intimately and personally. And through that bonding, through that possession of your spirit, that we're in the process of being set free to live this eternal life that Jesus died to give us. And I pray, Father, that as that uh, ingrains, that as the gospel ingrains itself in us, that, and we understand the way you parent us, that we too, Father, would model our parenting after you. That we would just be aware, Father, of uh, this uh, continuum of acceptance and accountability. And what comes first? And what can't be neglected? And I pray, Father, that as we do that, you would enable us to reflect your way of dealing with us into the lives of our families in order that Jesus might be honored and glorified. And it's his name we pray. Amen.